Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The COVID-19 vaccine rollout is moving faster in some parts of the state than others. Week to week, we find out how much vaccine we're getting, and sometimes even a day into the week. And so we're trying to make sure we can just be flexible. Coming up, we'll have more on those vaccine disparities. Plus, we'll explore the challenges facing bilingual contact tracers. Those stories and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado is currently at the beginning of phase 1B of its COVID-19 vaccination plan. But depending on where you live, that could mean a number of things. Some communities are already hosting drive through clinics for seniors 70 and older. Others are further behind and still finishing the job of vaccinating health care workers. That's leading to confusion and frustration for many residents, especially seniors. KUNC's Matt Bloom has been following the vaccine rollout across the state and joins us now with the latest. Hey, Matt. Hey, Henry. So what's happening? Tell us about these rollout differences. What's happening is we have some parts of the state making faster progress on Colorado's vaccination plan than others, and it's causing a lot of confusion. So at the end of December, Governor Polis made this announcement that the state was ready to move into the next phase of vaccinations before many healthcare providers and local health departments were actually ready to do that. Here's Polis talking about this new sort of in-between phase that the state is in right now. 1A is ending, but not over. 1B has started. Um, What does that mean? There is going to be a trickle of folks uh, on the medical side that that have not been vaccinated yet and will be vaccinated in the coming weeks. But that 100% of the supply going there, that is that is not uh, that is over. And the 70 and up has already started because many communities, they say, oh, we, we all of our medical staff has been vaccinated. What next? We're ready to go. He also changed the answer to what's next to include many more people than before. He included residents who are 70 years of age and older and more essential workers. So now we have this incredibly large group of people in the state, about 1.3 million people hearing that they're eligible to get a vaccine, but there actually isn't enough supply yet to vaccinate them all. Which parts of the state are furthest ahead and what are they doing well? One example is Eagle County. They held three public vaccination clinics for seniors 70 and up over the weekend. They were one of the first counties to do this sort of thing. And they actually got more than 500 people in that 70 and up age group their first doses. The reservations for these clinics booked up within minutes, which left a lot of people who couldn't get a reservation, who were frustrated at that. So now communications director Chris Widlock says that they're collecting people's information online and then reaching out to them personally when it's their time to make an appointment. Like week to week, we find out how much vaccine we're getting and sometimes even like a day into the week, like, oh, you're going to get a little bit more. And so we're trying to make sure we can just be flexible. And what's happening is a lot of public health departments across the state are now taking the same 
don't call us, we'll call you approach. What about the counties that are further behind? What's going wrong? So here we're seeing actually a lot of the more populated front range counties that are still finishing up vaccinations in the very first group of healthcare workers and nursing home residents before they can move along to seniors. So they're just taking longer to do that. Boulder County is one of those. I spoke with Hannah Gusetis, who works with the health department, and she says the county still has several thousand healthcare workers to get through just because they have a larger population than, say, a place like Eagle County does. I think it's going well. We're getting people done. Um, all of the hospitals are collaborating with each other and us. So I think it's going really well, but it is chaotic. And it, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Boulder's health department is also now telling their residents to sign up for this new notification system that they set up on their website, which should help people stay in the know in the weeks ahead. Matt, I know you've also been talking to families who are now trying to get access to vaccines. What have you been hearing from them? Some people have gotten lucky and their healthcare providers have reached out to them to set up an appointment. But I've heard from more people that are now kind of trapped in this mad search to make an appointment somewhere. Claire Sanford from Longmont is one of those people. She's been trying to make an appointment for her 88-year-old mother, Peggy, who lives in an independent living community for almost two weeks now with no luck. I'm hoping they will get this together and that, I, that everybody can look back on the frustration of December and January and just say, um, learning curve, but I sure wish the messaging had been different because we could have at least had a calm learning curve instead of that human feeling that someone's getting something that I'm not getting, which is um, it's a really yucky feeling to have. So what then is the solution for people like Claire and her mom? Well, ultimately, it's going to be a balancing out of supply and demand. Right now, there's a huge demand and still very little supply of vaccines. Polis, in his remarks last week, said he believes the state will be basically finished with vaccinating frontline healthcare workers and nursing home residents by the end of this week, and then supply for people in phase 1B, again, that's 70 and up, and essential workers will ramp up pretty quickly. So in the meantime, Claire and her mom, for example, actually showed up to their local Kaiser Permanente clinic in Longmont, and had the staff there walk them through this process of getting on a wait list. It's not much of a step forward, but it, it is something that uh, Claire says gives them some more comfort, that, that Peggy is a little bit closer to getting her first vaccine dose, and, and hopefully that's sooner than later. Well, looking forward to the next couple of weeks, what else can you tell us about what we should be expecting in terms of vaccine rollout? We're already starting to see some more healthcare providers like UC Health and Banner Health release guidance for their patients who are 70 and up online, whether it's just through their website or through email, inviting them to register to get notified or put on some kind of wait list to get an appointment once supply is available. And even smaller healthcare providers like Salud Family Health Centers are starting wait lists. Polis says he wants to see at least 70% of people 70 and up vaccinated with their first dose by the end of February. And if that happens, that would significantly help reduce the state's fatalities and hospitalizations from COVID-19. For a broader picture for the general public, all of this means it's still looking like vaccines won't be widely available until early summer. That's KUNC's Matt Bloom. Thanks for the update, Matt. You're welcome.
In the early days of the pandemic, scientists were hopeful that plasma donated from people who had survived coronavirus could help save lives. The idea was that antibodies present in survivors' blood would help severely ill patients recover. The latest evidence, though, suggests that convalescent plasma isn't quite the miracle treatment that doctors had been hoping it would be. Jennifer Brown reported on this for the Colorado Sun, and she joins us now with more. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me on, Erin. Can you briefly explain the basics of using donated plasma to treat COVID patients? What was the initial hope around using this as a therapy? How it works is you have survived coronavirus and you have antibodies in your blood, and then you go to a blood bank. And once they, if you can prove, first of all, that you did in fact have a positive COVID test at one point, and now you are no longer sick with the virus, so you have a negative test, but then thirdly, that you have these antibodies in your blood, they will take that from you. They take the, I guess they call it like the liquid part of the blood, the convalescent plasma, and it it contains these antibodies that then they can use as an infusion for somebody who is sick with the virus. And hopefully it kind of jumpstarts their body to start fighting back against this virus. So in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we saw pleas in the media from relatives of people who were sick and looking like they might die from COVID, um, hospitalized patients, and they were giving a lot of infusions at that point to try to bring these people back from, you know, succumbing to the virus. But it turns out that really isn't scientifically effective. On the surface, it it makes sense to me, but, um, you know, you spoke with a number of people, including an infectious disease doctor at Denver Health. His focus is on finding potential COVID-19 therapies. What did he tell you? What, What has he and other researchers found over the course of the last 10 months? What's really telling is that Denver Health recently decided that their physicians there will not be using this therapy routinely on COVID-19 patients. So they might never use it again for those hospitalized patients. And they had given it to, uh, in the ballpark of 40 people who were hospitalized and participated in a study with UC Health over at Anschutz um, that included, you know, 200 and some patients um, since April. And they really concluded that it didn't really help um, if a, someone is already hospitalized and severely ill with coronavirus, the, the, the plasma infusion is not really doing anything. And this jibes with national surveys and studies as well that are starting to come out that show that really it's not helping those very ill patients. So I found it really interesting that Denver Health is no longer doing it. University Hospital out in Aurora is only suggesting that doc- their doctors use it if it's part of some specific clinical trial and they're participating in two. And the blood bank at Children's Hospital, which was the very first in Colorado and third in the nation to collect this convalescent plasma back in very early April, is no longer collecting it. So it sounds like when it's given to patients who are hospitalized, so presumably they're very ill, no evidence this really works effectively. Is there still a use for convalescent plasma with coronavirus patients? Yes. I mean, they're hoping so. The research has shifted now 
to what if we give it to people who are in the very early stages of the virus um, to prevent them from getting severely ill. So one study that came out recently had some promising results with that. Um, the, the people who got it within the first few days of being ill who most likely were not hospitalized had a less likely chance of getting severely ill. So they're also doing a nationwide study that um, University Hospital is participating in where what if they give it to folks who show up in an emergency department and and say they're suffering from coronavirus um, they give them the plasma infusion right then. So they're kind of awaiting these results but it shows um, preliminarily that that might be the key to where this works. Well, you write in this article that demand for convalescent plasma is down in Colorado, but there are still places that are collecting plasma. What is being done with that? Vitalent, which is, you know, a huge blood collection um, organization in, in Colorado and nationwide, they have nine collection sites in the state. They're still collecting it. There's still a you know, national call from the federal government to kind of stockpile this plasma, I guess, in in case we realize it works really well for, you know, the beginning stages. So people are still donating. I think the blood banks that I talked to, um, they're still collecting it also at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. And they're having a little trouble getting the high concentration antibodies. Apparently, there's a very short window for that. But still, they're sending this plasma to other states uh, that are really seeing a spike in cases and places, you know, I, I was told by the blood banks that it really depends on the, the hospital and down to the physician whether they think that this is a, a treatment still worth trying on hospitalized patients. So there's definitely more demand across the the states than there is here right now. Jennifer Brown is a reporter with the Colorado Sun. You will find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Jennifer, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much, Erin. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. COVID-19 contact tracers continue to be overwhelmed and in short supply. That's especially true for the contact tracers who are bilingual and often have to take on a dual role. Stephanie Serrano has more for KUNC. Here's what we know. Bilingual contact tracers are working long hours. Every day they repeat the same process seven days a week. They dial the number. They wait. And they say hello. Yes, hi. ¿Cuál es tu nombre, por favor? Dulce Leva is one of them. Her job is to reach out to people who have tested positive for the novel coronavirus and make sure they're self-isolating, and also to help them remember who they've been around and could have spread the virus to. Las personas que están trabajando con COVID realmente tienen una entrega People who are working directly with those who had COVID-19 really have a commitment to the community and they really care. It's something that you are experienced with each person you talk to. And unfortunately, there are people who don't survive the virus. It is difficult work and we are working long hours. Leva moved to Reno, Nevada from Sinaloa, Mexico 19 years ago and lives here with her husband and two kids. She says several of her family members back in Mexico have met the virus face-to-face. Sadly, her uncle didn't survive. 
cuando uno lo vive de tan cerca y cuando uno tiene a, a familiares o seres When you experience COVID-19 close up, when you have loved ones going through everything the virus can do, it's difficult. She says it's because of this heartache that she was inspired to use her bilingualism to be a contact tracer and help reach non-English speaking Latinos in her community. Data shows Latinos, like other racial minorities, are more vulnerable to the disease. Leva says most of the people she talked to were exposed to the virus at work. They are aware of the danger, aware that the virus exists, but many times they don't have the option to stay home or work from home. Leva says what she can do, though, is tell them what resources are available to help them, food or rent assistance, for example. She can also talk to them about the basics for their families, mask wearing, washing hands, and social distancing. She believes Latinos are more receptive when the information comes through word of mouth rather than public health announcements. Pero si tu mamá te lo dice, si tu tía te lo dice, si tú ves a un familiar sufriendo, But if your mom tells you, if your aunt tells you, if you see family members suffering, that's when you say, well, this is not about ordering me to wear a mask or telling me what to do with my life. It's not about controlling people. It's about coming together as community to make a difference. What Leva is saying doesn't surprise Diana Sandy. Sandy is with the Nevada Public Health Training Center. It's hard and it's sad. She says the community's distrust in public health messaging is tied to information being translated from English to Spanish. If our target demo, you know, demographic is the Latinx population, well, then I want to write this PSA, this public service announcement. It has to be written in Spanish and translated to English. How about that? Because <laughs> it's more sense creating, right? It's, it's like messaging. It's not about translating necessarily. And a lot of websites, organizations will just kind of do the Google Translate, and it's not not accurate. And worse, you're just not providing the community the information in a way that they understand it. She says it's not just about getting information out in Spanish. It's about creating messaging that will bring people together and drive behavioral change. Liliana Wilbur is an epidemiologist in Nevada. She agrees that bilingual contact tracers have this second role of having to debunk misinformation. So these investigations do definitely take a little bit longer than, than usual. And Sandy says the role of all bilingual contact tracers just got a lot heavier as COVID-19 vaccines start to roll out in the next several months. She says the role of bilingual contact tracers will be critical in getting accurate information out into the Latino community. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Stephanie Serrano. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find this story and other stories in our series, Overinfected, Underresourced, at our website, KUNC.org. Colorado Insurance Commissioner Michael Conway has joined a group of state insurance commissioners to provide health policy recommendations to the incoming administration of President-elect Joe Biden. The group has laid out a dozen or so policy suggestions, some of them urgent, some more long-term. Commissioner Conway joins us now with more on what the group is advising. Commissioner, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me, Erin. It's always exciting to be here. This group is made up of insurance commissioners from 11 states. What is the focus of this group? How do you all envision your role? So I think, Erin, the, the, main, the main point that we were trying to get across with our letter is that 
really across the nation um, because we do from kind of from both coasts and throughout the middle of the country, we had insurance commissioners that wanted to come together and um, really emphasize to the new administration that we were here to be partners, um, both in policy implementation, but also thought partners too. Uh, and we know that when, uh, when, this, when the states act together with the federal government to try and bring healthcare policy forward, that's when we end up with the best results. And that's part of the reason why we're so excited about the incoming Biden administration, because we feel like we are going to have a partner again um, at the federal level that really is looking at, at building comprehensive health care coverage for folks. What are some of the immediate recommendations that you'll be making to this administration? I think the two that, are, that probably stand out the most for folks um, that are listening are really one we want. We encourage the incoming administration to think about uh, opening up a, what's called a special enrollment period, giving folks another opportunity um, on the heels of the current enrollment period that's happening to go out and buy insurance coverage for 2021. So at the national level, um, the, the opportunity, open enrollment is actually closed. We in Colorado, we, ex, we expand our open enrollment period. So our open enrollment period goes through the 15th of January. So there's another week left. But um, we're at least hopeful that the Biden administration, in light of the fact that the pandemic is still with us, will open up a special enrollment period to give, give folks a longer opportunity or another opportunity to go out and buy insurance coverage. The other piece, there's been, there's been a fair amount of uh, confusion as to when folks, can, when folks can actually get tested for COVID-19 and have their be required to cover it throughout the country. We've done a bit of a better job in Colorado of making sure that the insurance companies actually do cover testing pretty much across the board. But at the national level, at the federal level, um, the guidance that came out was a little bit opaque. It was a little bit hard to understand and there were some holes in it. So we encourage the federal administration to really close those holes or the incoming administration, I should say, to close those holes on testing to make sure that folks can get tested whenever they want to or need to get tested and be and be confident that they're gonna have their insurance company pay for it. What are a couple of the more long-term ideas? We kind of broke the longer-term ideas into two different factions in and of themselves. Things that we really think are critical, and then the pieces that we think are, are there's gonna be a little bit more time for the administration to work with the states in order to, to build again. Those critical components, the pieces that we really felt we needed the incoming administration to address right off the bat, some of the regulations that have been put in place by the Trump administration have been really problematic for folks. Um, they really kind of tore down insurance coverage for certain populations, especially marginalized populations. So we encourage the, the Biden administration to roll those back. We also encourage the Biden administration to work with states like Colorado. Colorado was the only state that was specifically mentioned in the letter, but work with states that are trying to be out front, try to be progressive with the different policy ideas that we're putting forth to find ways to work with us in order to, to help with those progressive ideas, to expand coverage, um, to make it more affordable for folks, to, to help those marginalized communities get enrolled. So that, that's really kind of the first part of the focus. The longer term pieces, um, what we really tried to focus on there was, again, that building of the ACA. So the, the, the Trump administration really rolled back um, coverage expansion um, and coverage expansion funding. And we asked the Biden administration to work on those types of pieces in order to 
to help long-term um, build the ACA and strengthen the ACA. How do you anticipate these um, policy recommendations that this group will put forward? Um, how do you think they'll be received by the administration? We've had a, a uh, some good feedback from the incoming administration, from the transition team, that they were very appreciative of the, the recommendations, I think, over the next few weeks. As the transition um, really takes shape, as we get to inauguration, I fully anticipate that we'll be engaging and having those conversations. And lastly, I just want to switch gears and talk about Colorado's open enrollment period, which will end soon. We last spoke near the end of November, but I want to get a sense now of how it's been going for people shopping for individual coverage on the health insurance marketplace. Um, what are the trends compared to a year ago, you know, before the pandemic? The trends um are good. And I hesitate to say that they're good because um, we've, we're seeing an increased enrollment. Uh, so the enrollment's about 9%, close to 10% higher than it was on the exchange last year. Um, my slight hesitation comes from my assumption, and we don't know yet, but my assumption is that at least part of that enrollment is from folks that lost their employer-sponsored coverage. They lost their, they lost their job, perhaps, and have come on to the exchange um, to get healthcare coverage. So um, the hesitation comes from, if I'm right, if my assumption is correct, um, my hesitation comes from that would mean that that some folks have lost their jobs, and that's never a good thing. But that's exactly why we had the ACA was put in place. That's exactly why it's it's serving the function that we intended it to, that it's that safety net for folks um, so that they don't have to be completely reliant on their employer for healthcare coverage when something like this happens. They have a place to land. Um, so the, from that vantage point, it's a great thing. And it's, a, it's an incredibly reassuring thing. Michael Conway is Colorado's insurance commissioner. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Aaron. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear about the scientists racing to understand how massive wildfires affect the water cycle. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our show is produced with help from Ray Solomon and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.